0: Good morning, church. Happy Advent season to everyone. It is hard to believe we're here already, and as we know, it will go quickly, as it seems to do every year. And in the spirit of Advent, a season of anticipation, a season of waiting, we're going to do our monthly memory verse a bit differently this month. We are not going to actually say the verse together corporately until the Sunday of Christmas Eve. And so each week we're going to take a moment at the front of the service and just pause silently and reflect on the words, and then on Christmas Eve Sunday we'll all stand and say the words together. So silently now, go ahead and reflect on the verse in your mind. Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipation. We wait eagerly, yet patiently. And I am not good at patience. It's a hard season. It's a season that I did not appreciate very much as an adolescent or youth in the church, probably because of my impatience. But as I've grown older and the Lord has worked on my heart and my mind and my life, I certainly appreciate this time of year much much more and in our anticipation life continues sometimes bright and sometimes as today a bit gloomy and we are left to navigate every space we find ourselves in one of the special privileges hard special privileges of christian ministry is getting to sit with individuals In grief and mourning. All of us have this opportunity, all of us have this privilege. We are, according to scriptures, all ministers one to another. And this is a very important part of our ministry to one another, together in Christ. For some who are much more patient than I, and others who are much more comfortable with discomfort and uncertainty that's involved with grief. This part of ministry comes naturally. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to spend time with individuals who have this gift, to sit with them and to see how they work uh, together with people who are really going through seasons of deep grief and mourning, and I've learned so much from those that have gone before to teach and to show. For myself, someone who tends to be impatient and is actually rather internally unsettled and disrupted by the uncertainties of grief and seeing others in pain that's hard for me. This particular part of ministry can be hard. And to make things even more difficult, there is no grief or mourning that is like any other. Everyone processes grief differently. Mourns differently, walks through seasons of loss and difficulty in different ways. And friends, the holidays add to the peculiarity of our grief. Most everywhere we go around the holiday days, we find ourselves in fellowship with people who are celebrating, who are rejoicing. And while on one level we might be able to find ourselves able to celebrate for a moment, there's another part for many of us that feels the sting of loss. And all along, those of us who have sat in our mourning know that lurking in the shadows of our grief are the enemies of fear and doubt. We doubt we will ever feel better. We doubt that we will ever get over the pain of our loss. We doubt that others care. We doubt that anyone is going to be able to understand or see us in our mourning. And we sometimes doubt that we'll ever be able to be comforted again. And then there's fear. There's fear that we're always going to feel this way, that we're always going to feel lonely or alone, the fear that our presence is no longer necessary, the fear that we might break down, get emotional at a holiday gathering with family, the fear that in our loss, God might have abandoned us or stopped working for our good. Friends, the season of Advent meets us in our grief and our mourning, takes us by the hand and walks with us into spaces of hope, peace, joy, and love. And as a community, we return to these spaces every year. Some of us now in these days walking through pain. Others of us now in these days walking through seasons of joy and cheer And we come so that we might reflect and rehearse and practice together the ways of Christ. Ways that rekindle our hope, that can inspire peace, that can create joy and motivate love. Even in difficult and hard places and seasons. Today, we explore the hope of this season of Advent. Hope that we can cling to as we walk through both seasons of grief and seasons of cheer. And a question for us to consider today, how might the anticipation of Jesus' arrival develop and form our hope, both in this world and the world that is to come? This season of Advent, we are going to be stepping into Isaiah's prophecy. We're going to spend time in Isaiah chapter 7, through 9 verse 7 so if you have your bibles you can go ahead and turn to isaiah chapter 7 today we're stepping into isaiah's prophecy at a time when all hope seems lost the situation here is desperate the deck is stacked against the nation of judah the southern kingdom and specifically against the city of jerusalem So today we're going to spend time reflecting on Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, and before we read to consider our hope, let's pray and ask God to guide our study together. Father, we come, and it is hard to wait. Prayers in the Old Testament travel through our minds. How long, O oh Lord? How long? And as we read the Old Scriptures, we're reminded of an ark where Noah spent 40 days and 40 nights waiting. We're reminded of the bondage of the people of Israel as they were in Egypt for generations, waiting. And then the wilderness, wandering as they waited. And then the walls for seven days, marching around the, the walls of Jericho, waiting And the captivities, both the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian captivities, waiting. And the diaspora, when the people were spread out, taken away, and planted in other places, waiting. And then the years of silence between the old and the new. Hundreds of years, waiting. Lord, while we wait, we need to know that hope is available. And indeed, through your word, you have told us that it is. And so we open your text today looking for a glimmer of hope while we wait already knowing that you've delivered it, but yearning to see it and reflect on it again. Be with us in our time of study today. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshuab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razan in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is razen. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Consider with me that Ahaz is in his 20s, his early 20s. When he is called to lead the nation of Judah. And as a young leader we are going to see throughout the next few chapters over the course of the next few weeks that Ahaz is going to rely all too much on his own strength, his own wisdom, his own efforts. His lack of faith, his lack of belief, his lack of hope is going to lead his people toward ruin. Here is a map of Judah. On the map, you'll see our raisin at the top, our raisin rope and peanut, a good way to remember how to draw Israel and the surrounding nations. If you want an acronym for the enemies of Israel to the east, you can think of the word same, Syria, Ammon, Moab, Edom, just like that, down the line. You can see on the map, Jerusalem, Judah is surrounded by enemies. Philistia to the west and to the east. All the others to the south, of course, Egypt, and to the north, Phoenicia. Two of Judah's neighboring kings are feeling the rising threat of the Assyrian Empire. Israel and Syria. By the way, as we start, Syria and Assyria, two very different nations. It's important to note that. Two very different nations in the Old Testament. Judah and Syria have found themselves unlikely allies. They're looking to Judah to become a third leg to help them stand against the threat of the Assyrian invasion that's coming. Ahaz, in his youth and his inexperience, is seen by the kings as an easy target. All involved here in these first few verses are motivated by fear. Ahaz, Pekah, and Razan. King Razin of Syria moves his armies into the northern kingdom and settles there, allying with the king of Israel as they prepare to attack Judah. And as word of the alliance between Israel and Syria spreads, fear takes root throughout Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. It was reported to the family of David, Syria has allied with Ephraim, Israel. They and their people were emotionally shaken just as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now there is good reason for the people to be fearful. Perhaps even hopeless. At the dawning of his reign in Judah, Ahaz had suffered terrible losses. At the hands of these same two enemies. We can see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. And now, not only were Israel and Syria once again on Jerusalem's doorstep, but we find out in other parallel accounts in the Old Testament that there were also threats coming from Edom to the east and Philistia from the west. And as fear envelops the people of Judah, God speaks to Isaiah And he tells him to take his son and go where? Now, I don't know about you, but the laundromat in our home is not a place that invites hope. Not at all. This is where they're going. Very interesting. Take your son and go near the washer's field, the fooler's field. At this location, there was limestone on the ground. And if you think of the block letters, think of block letters that you write kind of thicker in boxes, think of the letter V. In the limestone was carved out letters like V... Almost in block form. And the people would take their clothes and they would put them in those basins and those basins would have water in them and they would use their hands or their feet to press their clothes against the limestone on the water and to clean their clothes. There is much happening in this verse, in verse 3. Let's take a look again. The Lord told Isaiah, go out with your son, shear Jeshub, and meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool that is located on the road to the field where they wash and dry cloth. First, beginning with Isaiah's son. In the Hebrew language, names are very important because they tell us something about the role or the nature of the character. Isaiah's son's name is shear Jeshub. It means a remnant shall be. Return. Here we have Isaiah with a son who is present to provide hope for the future. God's protection, provision, and preservation of his people. Perhaps even foreshadowing another future son provided to give hope. But why are they on the road to the laundromat? The spot where they are standing or where they are headed to is significant for several reasons. First, there was water there. And throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible for that matter, water is a symbol for the production and preservation and protection of life. We see that over and over and over again. Second, this was a place of cleansing. A place where clothes were washed and whitened. The basins were smooth, limestone floors holding the water. Clothes would be placed, washed, often through the process that involved trampling. It wouldn't be long before Judah would face the trampling effects of war. It was in so many ways already at their doorstep. And though they would face this judgment, Ahaz and the people could cling to the hope that one day mercy would triumph over judgment. God's words through Isaiah to Ahaz, verse 4, they're meant to calm, to encourage, and to strengthen his resolve. Look at what he says, stay calm, don't be afraid, don't be intimidated. Then God describes how he perceives the kings and their plan. Isn't it interesting? He calls the kings two stubs of smoking logs. All smoke, no fire. Two stubs of smoking logs. Then he comments about the anger that has consumed them and isn't it interesting at the beginning of this text we find fear and anger as the primary motivator of the aggressors friends these two emotions often go hand in hand with each other they walk together anger consumes these kings and in a stunning move In verse 6, God reveals to Ahaz the game plan of the opposing kings. He gives them their, he gives King Ahaz the other king's playbook. He tells him what's going to happen, what they're saying in their mind. Look at verse 6. They say, Let's attack Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it. Then we'll set up the son of Tabeel as its king. God's revealing to Ahaz that he already knows the intentions of the opposing kings. Now, we don't know who Tabil is, this character, historically, but regardless, whoever he would have been, he would have been a puppet king to the whims of Syria and Israel. How would God respond to the plans against Judah? And how would Ahaz respond? To God's words and whose words and whose plans would Ahaz place his hope in all of that begins to become clear in verse seven God gives Ahaz clear words to place his hope in how much clearer could God get than verse seven take a look it will not take place It will not happen. That's pretty clear, right? That would be hopeful. Would that not be hopeful to you if you were in Ahaz's shoes and you had people plotting against you, intending to do harm to you. And one night in your sleep, God came to you in a dream or some other way and said, don't worry, it will not take place. It will not happen. That would be pretty hopeful. It does not prove to be hopeful for Ahaz. God's making a promise. The plans of Raisin and Pekah would not prevail. Their plans would fail. Because they were more dependent on one another than they were on God. But what? About King Ahaz. It's in verse 8 where God says, Within 65 years, Ephraim will no longer exist as a nation. Not only are they going to be unsuccessful, not only is this not going to happen, King Ahaz, but if you just wait, in 65 years, Ephraim will no longer even be a nation. And just as God spoke 13 years after this prophecy was given in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom would fall into the hands of Assyria. And within 65 years, as God had said, the northern kingdom would find itself completely settled by foreigners as King Asarhaddon, the son of Sennacherib, would open doors for outsiders to resettle inside of the boundaries of Israel. There is archaeological historical evidence for these events occurring. That has been found. A repeated word in verses 8 and 9. If you read them together. Is the word leader. Look at how many times it's used in these verses. Syria's leader is Damascus. While Razan was the leader of Damascus. Then Ephraim's leader was Samaria. While Remaliah was the leader of Samaria. Who would be Ahaz's leader. Friends, the person that we place our hope in, the person who we look to as our leader, often ends up getting the run of the house. Ahaz has the opportunity right here and right now to put his hope In the words of God and to trust them to trust that what God is telling him is true and to live as those words were true as God was his leader he has the chance to do that would he you see friends the person we are ultimately hoping on is the one that we are actually truly dependent on And as fear surrounded his people and as war threatened and insecurity grew, would Ahaz turn to God for dependence? Or would he turn to his military leaders, his own mind, his own efforts? Would he listen to the words of God? Or would he, in fear, cower to the words of the enemies that surrounded him? Church, how might we answer the same questions, both individually and as a corporate body, today? Where will we place our dependents? Whose words will have the priority in our lives? The words of the enemy are many in our culture, in our world, in our community. There is much that is said. There is many lies. There are many things that aren't true that our world, our country celebrates. God's word gives us a better way, a different way, a way that's free from bondage and fear, a way that leads to freedom, a way that's motivated by love. Whose words will we depend on? There is an answer that's built into these nine verses. It's actually at the end of verse 9. And there is something rather remarkable that happens in the Hebrew grammar here. This is where we sometimes in our English Bibles lose the beauty of the Hebrew language. We can't see what's going on behind the scenes or behind the curtains. But the Hebrew language curiously changes in verse 9. And the words here begin to take on the second plural that means that God is now seeing through Ahaz to all of the Davidic court. In other words, his words are no longer directed solely at Ahaz, but now he is speaking to the line and the lineage from which he would bring forth his own son of promise, Jesus, Messiah. God is also using poetry here, believe it or not. He's rhyming. It's a word play in Hebrew. It's lost in our English translations. Two key words used here one for believe, the other for endure. In the Hebrew, they sound like this, and you'll hear the rhyme Tehaminu, Tehamenu. That's the words. If you do not believe, you will not endure. One version says it like this in verse 9 If your faith does not remain firm, then you will not remain secure. How true are those words today, church? For us. Hope. If our faith remains firm, we will endure. If our faith does not remain firm, then we will not Endure. And oh, it's not just for the Old Testament, but the echoes and chimes of the statement are picked up and carried throughout the New Testament over and over and over again. Look at John chapter 20, verse 31 on the screen. But these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have Life in his name. Believe, endure. We see it again as Peter is writing to a suffering and persecuted body of new believers that are scattered throughout the Roman provinces in Asia Minor. It's in 1 Peter, it's the first epistle. In chapter 3, verses 13 to 16, he says, "...for who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good?" But in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. But do not be terrified of them or be shaken. Remember Isaiah 7, those words, shaken as trees, in verse 2. Do not be shaken, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. And always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about what? The what? The hope. The hope that we possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect. Keeping a good conscience so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. And he continues throughout his epistle Circling this idea, reminding the church to remain faithful in suffering, to answer persecution not with hatred and violence and insecurity, but rather with hope and love and truth and faithfulness and steadfast obedience. And he concludes that in our belief, as we are faithful, we will endure. There is hope. 1 Peter 5, And after you have suffered for a little while... The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him belongs the power forever. Amen. How hopeful in our suffering, in our grief. These are words for us. Our endurance, friends, will fizzle and fail without hope. I try on my own effort, it never works. It just doesn't I always run out of steam every time apart from Christ I can do nothing and that is true our hope and our faith must be firmly fixed anchored to the trustworthy and faithful person and work of Jesus he is our living hope, and He is the anticipated and long-awaited heartbeat of Advent. And as we continue over these next few weeks to reflect on Ahaz's leadership in chapters 7 to 9 in this series, we're going to watch Ahaz and the nation as they stumble Isaiah's son standing right there, his name clearly established an aim that a future hope of the people, the remnant shall return and Ahaz could not believe. Hearing the words and promises of God, we're going to watch Ahaz determined to hope in himself rather than in God. Ahaz listens and responds to the voices of his enemies over the steadfast words of God. All of this, friends, and yet, even in Ahaz's failure, even in his stumbling, even in his wandering around, tripping over things in the darkness, God would preserve, protect, and restore his people. And if we peek ahead, which we like to do this time of year, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 9, there we will see, right in the genealogy of Jesus, a name. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham The father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And if you know the next generation of Ahaz's story, Hezekiah, what do we know about King Hezekiah? He was good, he was righteous. Something hopeful. We fall, we fail. We sometimes become ensnared by fear and doubt. And God is still working. He doesn't stop. And he does not abandon us in our failures, nor does he leave us to navigate the gloomy and hard seasons of life on our own. Yes, we sometimes feel alone. Yes, we sometimes are lonely and feel abandoned. And in those seasons, we've been called to fix our faith firmly to God's words. And in that, He produces the sustaining endurance we need to continue. I say this often to folks who are grieving as I'm with them. One day at a time. Sometimes it's one moment at a time. Holding on to the truth of Emmanuel. We sang it today. God with us. And this allows us to stand under the most difficult spaces on this side of heaven with an uncommon, sometimes unsensible peace and joy and love and insurance and comfort that's unrivaled by those who have not yet believed. We know Jesus is coming, amen? Amen. He's coming. And we wait with both eagerness and patience for His arrival. Here's how Paul described it to the earliest believers in Rome. You want to watch this one, Romans 8. You can turn there. If you have underliners, get ready. Just look at verses 18 to 25 of Romans 8 with me. If you like to underline or highlight in your Bible, look for the word hope. Look how many times, listen for how many times the word hope appears in these verses. Romans 8. 18 to 25, Paul's talking about our great hope. For I consider, starting in verse 18, for I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now not only this but we ourselves also who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption the redemption of our bodies for in hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope Because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. In Advent, hope is like a pregnant woman. We can look at her. We can see the signs and the evidence that something is happening within her. Our awareness grows, anticipation heightens. We know a transformation is taking place. Waiting and hoping for it, we cannot always see it. We do not fully know there is so much glorious good to soon behold. And as we wait, we don't just sit on our hands. We prepare eagerly. What do we do when well, we wait for the arrival of that baby? We go and we ready up a space, dads, With great patience, we build the crib, right? Not. Great weeping and gnashing of teeth, more like it. We build the crib. We buy the car seat. Remember trying to buckle the baby into the car seat the first time? How in the world does this thing work? We accumulate everything that we need to clothe, to feed, to bathe, and to care for this new arrival. Then one day, through the groaning and the pain, the obstacles and adversities that are involved with birth, a baby arrives, and a hope that was once dimly imagined is now clearly present with us. This Advent season, friends, we wait in community, for the arrival of Jesus. And while we wait, we do so with eagerness and patience and endurance that God is forming within us as we are faithful to fix our hope on the promise of Jesus' soon coming return. He will come again. And let's resolve to be different than the people of Judah under King Ahaz. Let us not shake in fear like the tops of trees. Instead, let's resolve to live with steadfast faithfulness according to the righteousness of Jesus, a righteousness that He is producing through us as His Spirit is alive and active within us. Our team is going to come, and as they do, we're going to reflect on five hopeful statements in concluding our time. Statement one. Sin, death, suffering, and evil fill this world that we inhabit, but God's word says greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. Hopeful statement number two. Grief and mourning stemming from loss, stemming from sin, tragedy, sickness, they surround and deeply affect us. And Jesus reminds us we are not alone. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. Hopeful statement number three. Trials, tests, troubles, adversity are going to come. There will be wounds that need healing on this earth. There will be relationships that need mended and repaired. Jesus said in this world you will have troubles, but take hope, I have overcome the world. For a very long time, The hope of Messiah was veiled in silence. Perhaps some of us sit here today feeling hopeless. Or we have felt that sense of hopelessness. Veiled in silence, hidden in the bosom of the Father. But on that Christmas long ago, hope came present as a child wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And then finally, Though hope is present for us now, Jesus also says that he is returning someday soon. Believe and endure.